Well, greetings, church. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. It's a delight to minister the Word of God. Now, I know, I know that you know that the church is supposed to love, right? And not just to love, but we are to love more radically and supernaturally than this world can even think possible. Agreed? You see, the quality of our love, first for one another, and then for unbelievers out there in the world, the quality of our love should be so astronomically profound that it literally puts Jesus Christ on display as a treasure of infinite value. Agreed? The problem with that is, is that love, at least the kind of love that God commands, it is not natural or intuitive. It is profoundly supernatural and counterintuitive. See, though we like to think that we are, we are not self-replenishing rivers of affection overflowing in love for other people. No, we are, at best, leaky buckets that need to be filled and replenished by another outside of us. Because that's the thing about authentic love. It is not natural. It is profoundly supernatural. So we're kind of stuck here, aren't we? But the success of the Great Commission literally hangs in so many ways on the church's ability and responsibility to love. And yet, catch 22, we don't have the ability to love, at least not in the way that God commands. So what is a church supposed to do? How do we fulfill the mandate to love one another in a way, to love the world in such a way that puts Christ on display? Are there any resources at our disposal here? And the answer is absolutely there are. Of course there are. Because in answer to the question, where does affectionate Christ-exalting, mission-advancing love come from? The answer is, get this now, the power to love comes from truth. It comes from truth. Radical love that changes the world is a chain reaction in the soul produced by truth, and in particular, the truth about salvation. So you understand this, when you are clobbered, when you are undone by what God had to do in Christ to save you from eternal woe and despair, then you will have the power to love. When you are staggered by the salvation realities in Christ that saved us, then we will have the power to love. And the reason I say this is because that's exactly what Paul says in Titus chapter 3. And you see, that's, that's the thing about Titus, is that what it is, as you know, is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, whether planting a new church, whether resurrecting a dead church, or nursing a sickly church back to health, Titus is the raw materials with which you do that. And Although Paul's got loads of things that he says you need to have a healthy church, one of the things he says you need to be healthy is when we learn how to care and love 
have love for one another, not just for us inside the church, but also for unbelievers outside the church. The Great Commission hangs on our ability to love one another and unbelievers outside the church in the world. This is kind of a deal breaker. And yet Paul's no dummy. He knows that love is not magically created out of thin air. He knows that just talking about the necessity to love doesn't create love. He knows that love doesn't grow on trees. Rather, he knows that, tr- that love is produced in the soul by the fuel of truth, and in particular, the truth about what God had to do in Christ to save you. And so that means this morning what we're going to do is we're going to gorge ourselves on the feast of salvation. What we're going to do is we're going to dine on the gourmet meal of sovereign grace and what God had to do in Christ to save you because I am persuaded, I am persuaded that the chain reaction of authentic love is produced in the soul by the fuel of truth. So I want you to think about your lives right now, the relationships that you have in your lives right now in this moment, both in and outside the church. Are there any severed relationships that seem beyond repair? Any bitterness in your heart towards people that you just can't seem to forgive? Any people in your life that feel impossible to love? Are you disgusted by unbelievers in your life and it feels impossible to feel pity and compassion for their souls? I just want you to know there is power to change. Do you want to be changed? Do you want your relationships to change? Because they can and they must change and it all begins with being overwhelmed with the sovereign grace of God in Christ that saved you from eternal woe and despair. And so the Feast of Grace begins in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Titus 3, 4 through 7, here's where we're going. Maybe you have notes, maybe you don't, but here's where I'm headed. This morning, I want you to see from our text three features of salvation. Three features of salvation that empower us to love with affection and sacrifice. That's where we're going. Three features of salvation that empower us to love with affection and sacrifice. And so the first feature of salvation is this, number one, the conditions of our salvation. The conditions of our salvation. And by conditions, I mean what did and did not contribute to your salvation. I mean what did and did not motivate God to save you. Because here's the thing about our text this morning that you absolutely cannot miss. Here's the thing you cannot miss about verses 4 through 7 is that before and after our text, before and after verses 4 through 7 are really clear instructions on how to interact with other people, both in and outside the church. That makes sense? Verses 1 through 3 deals with the world. Verses 8 through 11 deals with the church. And in between is this riveting display of what God had to do to save you from destruction. And notice, notice in verse 3, Paul's, Paul's method for how to help you deal with unbelievers, unbelievers outside the church, because let's be honest, let's be honest here, unbelievers are not easy to love. 
we would know because we used to be them. Right? We're not saying Christians are better. We're just saying Christians should be different. And we're just saying that the world is filled with really unpleasant people. And yet I want you to notice, I want you to notice how Paul wants to shape your thinking about unbelievers. Verse 3. For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Do you see? That was us. That's who we were. We were exactly like them. Wicked people, slaves to our sin. We were blind, dead, damned, and helpless. And the only reason why we're not that way now is owing entirely to sovereign initiative and grace. Because when you remember who you were and where you were headed, had not God intervened, it becomes impossible to feel superior even over to the worst of sinners, which is exactly what we were. And speaking of God's miraculous intervention in our lives, look where Paul goes in verse 7. Look what he says. He says, but when? But when God, our Savior's kindness and love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Do you feel it? The head-on collision of grace in the text. You were this, verse 3. And no possibility of ever reversing your situation. We, we were there. The furious wrath of God burned against us. And then all of a sudden, verse 4, hits us like a freight train of sovereign grace. But when? But when? You were this, verse 3. But something happened to you. Something changed in you what what happened god intervened that's what happened god stepped in and did what you could never do on your own and what did he do verse 5 tells us what does verse 5 say it says he saved us he saved us He saved you. That's what happened to you. And you have to know that verb, saved, that's the main verb in this whole section. That's the gravitational center that holds it all together. And yet, in verse 4, Paul gives us the literal historical events that happened in history that required, that were needed to make your salvation even possible. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, but when... God's kindness and love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Did you see it? Did you see what had to happen for you to get saved if in fact you are saved? God's kindness and love for mankind had to appear. That was the historical event that literally made our salvation any, even possible. The kindness and love for mankind of God had to appear. It had to appear on the planet. And the best news in the world is it did appear. And yet what this does is raise our curiosity, doesn't it? When did God's kindness and love appear? 
How did God's kindness and love appear? In, in what form did it appear? Paul, what are you saying? And then all of a sudden it dawns on us with stunning clarity, doesn't it? That the only thing that fits that description is Jesus Christ himself. That God's kindness and love appeared in literal history in the form of and with the appearance of Jesus Christ. That God's kindness and love showed up to the planet in the form of a living, breathing Savior whom the prophets had predicted for centuries. Jesus Christ is God's kindness and love incarnate. Meaning what? Meaning Meaning the greatest, the greatest, clearest display of God's kindness and love was not your wedding day, nor the day that the ch your children were born, nor the day that the disease got healed, glorious though those events may be. No, the, the supreme display of God's kindness and love was when God incarnated himself as a human being to save you from eternal woe and despair. But again, what this does is raise the question. Now, a question, mind you, of, of gargantuan, earth-shattering significance, by the way, but what this does is raise the question. On what basis did God save you? The question is, what did and did not contribute to your salvation? The question is, what conditions had to be met for you to be saved? Because I'll just tell you, the answer to that question contains within it the explosive ability to love other people, both in and outside the church. And the answer to that question is found exactly in verse 5. Look at the text. But when God, our Savior's kindness and love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not, not from works which we had done in righteousness, but he saved us according to his mercy. Did you see that? What did and did not contribute to your own salvation? What did not contribute, look what he says, were the works that we had done in righteousness. In other words, before you got saved, when you were a spiritual corpse enslaved to your sin, there was not one single thing you ever did that ever contributed to your salvation in any positive way. That's what Paul says, isn't it? God saved us, not from works which we had done in righteousness. This wasn't a factor. They didn't count. They had no merit. We had no bargaining chips to cash in for salvation. We had nothing. We were completely helpless and bankrupt before the God of the universe, not a penny of grace in our accounts. And, and the question may be, why? Why don't good works count for salvation? Do you ever think about that question? Why don't they count? Why can't we earn our way? And the answer is, is because in the economics of salvation, that's just not how it works. Because sin is an infinitely evil crime against an infinitely worthy God which deserves an infinite punishment and a few good works simply doesn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Put a tux on a corpse if you want to, but it doesn't make it come back to life.
cleaning your personal kitchen does not pay back the national debt. There, there's no connection between those things. And in the exact same way, a few good deeds to blackmail God doesn't cancel the infinite wrath against us. Don't you see the nature of what sin is? The nature of God's righteousness rules out the possibility of meriting our own salvation. Because try though we may, when we were enemies of God to earn God's favor, save people from burning buildings, give all of our money to the poor, find a cure for cancer, achieve impeccable morality, end world hunger, and if we are not in Christ at the end of the age, before the throne, it would all be worthless. And many will stand before the throne at the end of the age, hoping to cash in their tokens of achievement, thinking that they can bribe the king, only to find out that all of their accumulated efforts to obtain salvation had all been for nothing. And maybe you're thinking now, hold on a second, Jared. Are you saying that righteous deeds don't matter? Are you saying we're not responsible to do righteous deeds? I mean, are you saying that they don't matter? No, no, no. They do matter. They do matter. It's just that they are worthless to merit salvation. Don't you see? Righteous deeds were never intended to be the evidence that God should save you. They were only intended to be the evidence that God has saved you. Do you feel the difference? Because what does Isaiah 64 verse 6 say? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, literally in the Hebrew, bloody rags. So the unanimous testimony of Holy Scripture is that the only contribution that you had to your own salvation were the sins that needed to be forgiven. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Are you 100% persuaded that you were so spiritually bankrupt that apart from God's sovereign intervention, you were never going to believe and be saved? I hope you believe that because that's not only true, that empowers you to love. How so? Because when you are rocked, when you are undone, unraveled by the reality that there was never anything that you could do to merit your own salvation, what that does is prevent us from feeling even the least millimeter of superiority over another human being again. And yet what this does, again, is raise another question. Okay, okay, if righteous deeds, if doing righteous things are powerless to earn salvation, and they most certainly are, the question becomes is, okay then, what was the basis on which God saved us? What what were the conditions that had to be met for us to be saved? What did and did not contribute to our salvation? And what did contribute, in fact, the only thing that contributed to your salvation is found in verse five. Look at the text. He saved us not from works which we had done in righteousness, but instead of that, in fact, the exact opposite of that, he saved us according to his mercy. There it is. There it is. Did you see it? The 
basis upon which God decides to save hell-deserving sinners are not our trophies of achievement or our resumes of morality, but the sovereign, devastating, infinite, intervening mercy of the living God. That is the basis. That is the condition that had to be met for you to be saved. God had to be and most certainly is merciful. Make no mistake this morning. If you are in Christ, God chose you before the foundation of the world because he is merciful. God adopted you as sons and daughters of the living God because he is merciful. He sent Christ to be crushed in our place because he is merciful. He canceled the infinitely long criminal record of sins against us through his son because he is merciful. And he has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom because he is merciful. And if you get that, if you get that, you cannot but help love other people. Why? Because, because you can't marvel at the mercy of God and not authentically care for other people at the same time. You have to understand the secret, the secret to loving the most difficult people in your life is totally 100% dependent upon having your mind blown by the mercy of God in Christ. So here's the challenge. I'm dead serious. You memorize verses four through seven and other passages exactly like it. And, and they're in your notes. Romans 3, 20 through 28. Romans 5, 6 through 11. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You memorize those and you recite those a thousand times a day if you must. And I guarantee on the lives of my children that your relationships will begin to change. Why? Because when you are staggered by the salvation realities in Christ, you cannot but help love other people. And that brings us to the second feature of salvation. The second feature of salvation that empowers us to love, number two, the cause of your salvation. The cause of your salvation. Because that's the question, isn't it? How on earth exactly did you get saved? Like, like, what, like what happened to you? And I'm talking about in real time, in the moment, when you got saved. Like what was the thing that, that happened? And, and maybe you're thinking, well... Jared, there's really not a lot to figure out there. There's, there's no rocket science to untangle. I simply heard the gospel and I believed. Don't, don't over-engineer this. Don't overcomplicate this, Jared. And yet, and yet that's just the thing. Was it really that simple? I mean, it's true. It's true. There is a certain simplicity to it. You heard the gospel. You believed your faith was your own and you made a legitimate conscious choice to believe in Christ. Absolutely agreed. No one disagrees with that. And yet the question is, how did you come to believe? Was that your own idea? Did that faith belief originate 
ultimately from you? Or were there other powers and influences at work in your salvation? You see, what I'm asking is, why was it that one minute the gospel was a joke and the next minute it was the greatest news in the world to you? What what was the thing that made the difference between those two things? Because what if, just go with me on this, what if your spiritual condition before Christ because of your sin was so paralyzing that on your own it would have been impossible to turn to Christ? What if that were the case? In other words, what if you were blind? What if you were dead, spiritually speaking? What if you were a slave to your sin and something as seemingly simple as believing in Jesus would have been absolutely impossible for you, impossible, unless that is a miracle was done in you first? Because <laughs> guess what? That eye-opening, heart-awakening, life-giving miracle is exactly where Paul takes us. This is how you got saved. Look at verse 5. He says, when God's kindness and love for mankind appeared, he saved us not from works which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Here it is. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There it is. God's mercy is why he saved you. Regeneration is how he saved you. And for the good of our own souls, we've got two questions here that we have got to get to the bottom of. Number one, what is regeneration? And number two, how is it that regeneration produces authentic love for people in and outside the church? Number one, what is regeneration? What does it mean to have been regenerated? Because, because look at carefully Paul's wording. Look what he says. He says, God saved us through the washing of regeneration on the one hand and the renewal of the Holy Spirit on the other. And here's what you really have to come to grips with. Here's what you have to understand to make sense of this. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, those aren't two separate things. Those are the same event described in two different ways. What Paul is saying is that the washing of regeneration is a renewal performed by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It's the same thing, two different ways. So again, we have to ask the question, what is regeneration? And that word in Greek, it doesn't sound very pretty, palingenesia, that word in Greek literally means, get this, born again. Born again. To be regenerated, then, is to have been brought to life. It's to have been made alive. It's to have been brought into existence. I mean, isn't that exactly what, what Christ said to Nicodemus, John chapter 3? Hey, pal, um... I just want you to know that if you even think you're going to step foot in the kingdom, you have to be born again. And, and have you ever thought about that birth language that's used? I mean, born again? 
I mean, do you, do you know why that being born, why that birth language is so significant? Have you ever thought about that language before? Why it's significant? I'll tell you why it's significant. It's significant because birth or being born perfectly captures the reality of being spiritually reborn. Namely, that you had about as much to do with your spiritual rebirth as you did with your physical birth, which was nothing. Which was nothing. You didn't cause yourself to be born, did you? You didn't ask for it. You didn't want it. You didn't produce it. You couldn't make it happen. Being born was completely out of your control. Non-existence cannot will itself to become a fertilized egg in the womb. That is exactly what Paul is talking about when he's talking about being born again. That's what born again is. God made us alive, which allows us to believe in the gospel even in the first place. This is exactly what Paul describes in Ephesians 2. Let's see what he says, Ephesians 2, 5. This is incredible. He says, even when we were dead, notice the language, dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. Do you hear that? Paul just described regeneration as a spiritual resurrection from the dead. You were dead. God made you alive. That's regeneration. Moses, believe it or not, described this same event that was going to happen in the future, and he called it a circumcision of the heart. That's gross, Moses. You don't talk that way in public. And yet, do you see the significance of that language? He he wants you to know that the new birth is like doing divine reconstructive surgery on a dead soul. That's why. This is is exactly what God's talking about in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, describing the new birth. Listen very carefully to the language he uses. And I shall give to you a new heart. A new heart, transplant. (laughs) And a new spirit I shall put within you. And I shall take the heart of stone from your flesh and I shall give to you a heart of flesh and I shall put my spirit within you and I shall cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Did you hear what he just said? Being born again is the equivalent to having a spiritual heart transplant done. You see, you you, you may not realize this, but before you got saved, you had a heart of stone, resistant, defiant, unresponsive to God, except for rebellion. And it was replaced with a living, breathing, warm heart that was able to see God and savor God and treasure God for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That's what happened to you if you are saved. And I'm still not done. Because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, that regeneration is the equivalent, that, that it, is, it is the equivalent to when God spoke light into existence in creation. Because in your soul, before God saved you, make no mistake, there was only darkness. No life whatsoever. And as you know, darkness cannot will itself to become light. No, it becomes light when light breaks in and intervenes. 
That is exactly what happened to you when you got saved. Isn't that what the hymn writer talks about? We sing the words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is regeneration. And that's what happened to you when you got saved. Or at least that what's, that's what needs to happen to you if you are not saved. So are you getting a sense of what the Bible means when it's describing regeneration? New life emerged where it previously didn't exist. A new creation was made. Light dawned in the soul. A resurrection from the grave took place. Divine reconstructive surgery was done. A spiritual heart transplant was performed. Or as Paul says here, you were washed and renewed by God, the Holy Spirit. Don't you see, to be born again is a miracle. A life-giving, eye-opening, heart-awakening miracle that had to be performed or you were never going to believe and be saved. See, if you're saved here this morning, and I hope you all are, God saved you through the sovereign instantaneous awakening of God the Spirit through the gospel which enabled you to see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is and granted you the very repentance and faith by which you are saved. Or if you didn't get all that, all regeneration means is that even when you were dead, God walked up to the tomb of your dead soul and he said, live! And you became alive. And you can see, right? You, 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 can, you can see why this doctrine means so much to the life of the church, can't you? I mean, many assume that being born in a Christian home makes them a Christian. It doesn't. Many think that doing an altar call at a concert or after a sermon makes them a Christian. It doesn't. Many think that simply praying a prayer when they were little is proof that they are saved. It is not proof, necessarily. And many think that surely, surely because they were baptized, that that is proof that their salvation is authentic. And it is not proof, necessarily, because, because what ultimately and finally determines if you have salvation is if you have been born again by God. That is it, period. So my question for you is, have you been born again? Is there any life in your soul? Or are you still a spiritually dead slave to sin, trapped in darkness with a heart of stone? How would you know? How would you know if you were a spiritually dead slave to sin, trapped in darkness with a heart of stone? How would you know? by answering, by thinking long and hard about this one question. You ready? Do I find Jesus to be merely useful? Or do I find him to be beautiful? 
Is he a treasure to you? Is he appealing to you? Is he irresistible to you, or do you actually kind of think he, think he gets in the way of what you think will make you happy? What I'm saying is the pulse of spiritual life, the evidence of being born again, is a gradually increasing hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ through his word. And imperfect though it may be, people who are truly alive want Christ more than anything. Even when they don't want him, they want to want him. Do you see? See, that's how you tell if you're living or you are dead. The taste buds of your soul are acclimated to Jesus Christ as the fountain of the soul. So are you living or are you dead? Because if you are dead, I just want you to know that Jesus Christ, through my voice, is offering to you life. What the heck are you waiting for? I'm serious, like, like what are you waiting for? What, what really is so valuable that you think you can't live without that, that prevents you from having the springs of eternal life? There's nothing to lose, there's nothing to gain. There's, no, uh, there's, there's nothing to lose, there's everything to gain. What are you waiting for? Turn from sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and King and Savior and treasure. And if you are born again, can you see, can you see how this would empower you to love other people? Because don't you see that the cause of our salvation, how you got saved, should produce a chain reaction in your soul, both for believers and for unbelievers. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because being born again does two things. Being born again gives you perspective and being born again gives you power. Being born again gives you perspective about other people and being born again gives you power to love other people. Here's what I mean. Regeneration gives you perspective in that it kind of helps us get over ourselves just a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. To know that God saved you through the sovereign, instantaneous awakening of God the Spirit, and had he not done that, you would have never believed and been saved. When that hits you, there's just something that happens in the soul, isn't there? To know that you are the recipient of such infinite love and mercy radically changes how you view other people, and how you should view other people, by the way, is as either former spiritually dead slaves, just like you were, or as currently dead slaves to sin who need to be awakened just as you yourselves had been. That is perspective. But number two, regeneration is power. Regeneration provides the power, all the power we need to triumph over the sins to which we used to be enslaved. Remember what those were? Verse three, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Newsflash, everything changed when you got born again. Because God not only demands that you love people, he provided all the power you need through regeneration so that you can love people. 
And so my application is very simply this. If you want to be a tender, humble, compassionate, affectionate person that really loves people, and I know you do, then you need to make this doctrine right here the object of your sweetest contemplation. That brings us finally to feature number three. The third feature of our salvation that empowers us to love because we saw the conditions of our salvation, right? We saw the cause of our salvation, didn't we? And now we see, number three, the conclusion of our salvation. The conclusion of our salvation. And you know, I, I travel a lot, so I, I notice this. But when you get on a plane, it's, it's not hard to guess where people are going based on the mood they're in on the plane, is it? See, people who are traveling to work, for instance, people who are traveling to work, usually pretty focused and stoic. Laptops, iPads already out, working away. People going on vacation, college kids going to, taking a trip to Europe, they don't have a care in the world. They're laughing and talking with people around him, joking with the flight attendants, ordering alcoholic drinks for the flight. And then there's those people who have this grim look on their face and they just want to be left alone and you can only wonder where their destination is. You can only wonder what's waiting for them on the other side. And you see, there, there's a spiritual counterpart to that. You see, you can tell what Christians are hoping in by the way they treat people. Put it another way, you, whatever it is that Christians hope in, in the future, changes everything about the way they treat other people in the present. And Paul tells us exactly what our hope should be that radically changes our mood in the present. Look at verses six and seven, look what he says. He says, God saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us through, richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, here it is, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you see it? Did you see the destination of our salvation, the conclusion of our salvation, verse 7, if you are in Christ, is eternal life. That's the conclusion of our salvation that changes everything about how we live in the present, including how we treat other people. And, and notice the language that Paul uses here. He talks about the hope of, the hope of eternal life, but what he means is the hope which is eternal life. Our hope, the substance of our hope, is eternal life. Eternal life is the thing we are hoping for. Eternal life is the thing we are hoping in. It is what we are waiting for. Eternal life is our hope. And, and the thing that non-Christians just, just don't realize, the thing that they just can't put their fingers on because they're dead, is that the reason why they're so unhappy is because they're all homesick for a place they have never been. They all have this nostalgia in their hearts for a time period in which they've never lived, namely 
the sinless, curseless garden of Eden before the virus of sin was unleashed in the world. You see, people don't realize it, but right now we are living in the ruins. We are living in the ruins of an ancient civilization that in the beginning was created perfect. See, we live in this advanced technological age that seems so sophisticated and seems so pulsing with life, and yet even with all of its innovation and beauty, people don't realize that it is a mutilated version of the original. This world is a shadow of what it once was and what it will be again. And what it was and what it will be is exactly the hope about which Paul speaks the paradise that every human soul longs for, which used to exist and will exist again, is eternal life. And you have it if you are in Christ. And eternal life is not merely living a really long time or merely avoiding death. No, it is life how we were created to live. It is everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure in God, in paradise, forever and ever and ever. That is our hope. And if that is our blood-bought hope, if that is the conclusion of our salvation, and it is, then that changes everything about the way you think about and the way you deal with, and the way you interact with people in your life. You see, we grumble, and we complain, and we slander, and we gossip, and we talk bad about people behind their backs, and we exalt ourselves over other people simply because we have forgotten our hope, or in the case of some people, and I hope this is not true for anyone here, they don't actually have hope. They think they do, but but they don't. Because did you know that? Did, did you know that how we treat and how we feel about and how we interact with other people in this life is a profound reflection of what we actually truly hope in? Which means I need to ask you, how are you doing in your thoughts about, in your treatment of, and in the way you speak about other people? If I gave Alex a signal right now, and I told him to play, and I told him that, you know, unbeknownst to you, that we had been secretly recording private conversations in your home, and I gave him a signal, and he began to play those conversations for everyone to hear. Would the conversations that take place in the privacy of your own home, would they reflect anything different about the conversations of people who have no hope? crushing. It's crushing. Because you see, you and I both know that if this church is going to love, if we're going to have a radical love that changes the world for both people in and outside the church, love doesn't come from nowhere. Love is produced by truth. And in particular, the truth about what God did in Christ to save us. You see, we could talk about loving one another all day long if we want. But that doesn't magically make it happen. That doesn't magically make anything appear. No, we will only be a loving church if we are a people, get this, who hunger for eternity. We will love when we long for the springs of eternal life. 
when we cannot wait for the golden shores of the age to come, when we have one foot already, as it were, in the next life. Don't you see? The nature of eternal life with its guaranteed pleasures to come free us to love other people. Let me put it this way. A heart that is fixated on eternity in which there is fullness of joy in God forever, that heart is freed to love others with affection and joy. Because should our treasures remain on earth and be focused on the self and be on something other than God, we will always be stingy and tight-fisted with love. My application is very simply this. Take time to ponder the paradise to come from the pages of scripture. Then, then you will love other people. But the issue about inheriting eternal life, and we're almost done. The issue about inheriting eternal life, actually there's a couple, there's a couple big problems with inheriting eternal life. In fact, there's, there's two really major things that prevent you, that stand in the way, stand as obstacles to you inheriting eternal life. This is pretty serious. We, we should care about this. This is, this is a really big deal. There's two things that stand in the way of us inheriting eternal life, and they are this. Number one, we don't have the power within ourselves to persevere through all temptations and trials to reach the end. We don't have that within ourselves because on our own, we will fall away. On our own, we will apostatize. On our own, we will jump ship and we will shipwreck our faith and we will drown. Number two, the other obstacle that stands in our way is that our infinite guilt makes us disqualified to inherit eternal life. You don't get to go into the kingdom with an infinitely long criminal record of sins. So do you see that? The power that you don't have, that you need to persevere to the end, and your infinite guilt disqualifies you from eternal life. That's a really big problem. Unless, that is, you are in Christ. Paul says it's not a problem if you're in Christ because he gives two salvation blessings purchased by Christ that enable us to inherit eternal life. Look very carefully at what they are. Salvation blessing number one, look at verse six. God saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Notice, notice first the work of the Trinity in your salvation. God the Father poured out God the Spirit through God the Son. That's neat, isn't it? Number two, notice. Notice the rich outpouring of the Spirit of God is designed to provide the power you need to persevere to the end and not fall away. You see, when you stand back and when you look at a New Testament theology of God, the Holy Spirit, it becomes really clear that the Spirit's work in your life is necessary because, because He was given to supply all the power you need through the Word to reach your destination. Without the Spirit of God, you do not make it. You see, contrary to popular belief, the Holy Spirit is not a buzz to be felt 
but the third person of the Trinity who supplies the power we need to not crash and burn in our faith. Problem solved. Salvation blessing number two. Found in verse seven, look at the text. It says that God saved us through the regenerating work of the Spirit, whom God the Father poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Here it is. So that having been justified by His grace, we should be made heirs of eternal life. Did you see it? Do you see the gospel logic in the text? To reach our salvation destination, we not only need the power of the Spirit to persevere, we also need to be justified by the grace of Jesus Christ. Because again, our infinite guilt, feel this, our infinite guilt makes us disqualified for eternal life. Our infinitely long criminal record of sins makes us disqualified. We are guilty. And yet, and yet, in an incredible turn of divine irony, God made a way. God made a way for the perfect, spotless righteousness of his son to be transferred, as it were, to your bankrupt spiritual bank account so that when the father looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. That's justification. Problem solved. And you see all that, all these things, don't you see all these things that we just saw in this text, verses four through seven, the appearance of Christ, the mercy of God, the regenerating work of God, the Spirit, the rich outpouring of the Spirit, justification by grace, when it staggers you, what God had to do to save you from eternal woe and despair, then, then we will love because, and I close with this, affectionate love in the soul is produced by the fuel of truth and in particular the truth about what God has done in Christ to save you. See where a robust knowledge of salvation is lacking in a church? Authentic love for people also is lacking. Why? Because when you are truly gripped by what it means to be loved by God, then and only then can you love in a way that brings glory to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a feast Titus 3, 4 through 7 is. How many mouths does it take, O oh Lord, to dine on that meal? People have done so for centuries, for centuries and centuries. This text right here, O oh Lord, the object of many saints' contemplation. And what I'm asking, O oh Lord, what I'm asking, O oh Lord, is that you would use this text to inject into the very life of our church that this text would be like lightning that would strike in our souls and that would awaken in us the reality of what you have done in your son to save us. And I pray that, when, that we would contemplate that reality and I pray that what that would do, O oh Lord, that the trigger effect of that would result in profound, unexplainable love first for one another in this church and then 
for unbelievers out there, outside the church. Oh Lord, I'm begging, I'm begging you for awakening, for a divine awakening that would ripple through this church. I'm begging you for renewal, spiritual renewal, renewed passion for the glory of Christ, renewed passion for the great commission. And I'm pleading with you for transformation, transformation through proclamation that your word would have a devastating effect in this church and that we would be a people changed and transformed that put your infinite worth and value and beauty and supremacy on open display. We thank you for this time together and we look forward to what you will do in our lives always and only for the glory of Christ. And it's in his matchless name that we pray.